there's two things that I thought in the first half of the book that didn't suck outright. And then I was just, I swear to God, like John Wagner could drop me a note and tell me to go sacrifice a calf in his name. And I would do it. I would just be like, yeah, okay. Cause you're the only person keeping me alive on the drop train at this point. So. Oh, well now I have a cold open. <laughs> <laughs> Get on the drop train. Welcome back to the fabulous, wonderful world of Drock, the monthly podcast where myself, Graham McMillan, and my esteemed, handsome podcast husband, Jeff Lester, damn it, <laughs> I go through 2000s Judge Dredd strip uh, from the very beginnings of 1977 to as far as we can get using the complete case files. We're coming to you this time from Jim Henson blog. And we are doing The Complete Case Files, Volume 20, a volume that Jeff Lester is such a fan of, oh. such such a fan of that he's already talking about. Uh, I, I don't know if it's human sacrifice, but definitely some sacrifice. That is true. I should say that it is material from 1993 through 1994, or 2000 AD, Progs 856 through 887, and Judge Red the Magazine, Volume 2, 44 through 56. It's a mixed bag, to say the least. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes, it is. It is indeed that. I mean, by which we mean there is a lot of really, I think, frustrating material in here, to put it mildly. And then there is uh, the John Wagner material. Yeah, we should say the writing credits for this are very varied. Mm-hmm. Arguably the most varied we've seen in a case file since like case files one. Yes. So we've been we've had John Wagner basically be the the main writer on the strip for you know a good thirteen years. Then Garth Ennis takes over for a few years. At this point, the two thousand eighty strips feature literally zero Wagner material. Instead, they're written by John Smith, Mark Miller, with some Grant Morrison co-writes in there, Alan McKenzie and John Tomlinson, the two of which write under the pseudonym Sonny Steelgrave, which I can only assume is there to hide the fact that it's terrible and they didn't want their names attached. (laughs) (laughs) Writes and draws a serial, which is an experience. And in terms of the magazine, Wagner does most of it, but Jim Alexander, Robbie Morrison, and Gordon Rennie also contribute there. Yes. So that's a that's a lot of writers, especially for Dread. Right. Agreed. And and let me let me sort of be clear that if there are people Sunny Steel Grave stuff is very terrible. Uh but them because they were editing 2080 yes um honestly i kind of liked manchu candidate um and i also <laughs> want to give it up for roadkill by john smith where which is very good smith is is the one yeah non-wagner dread writer i think we both like at this point yeah i think so well i mean i do think uh i i want to say in the magazine i i i think gordon rennie's story is somewhat weak but not 
it's not up it's not up to Wagner standards, but it's stronger than what we see here. But yeah. Smith actually the thing that I think is fascinating is Roadkill is very good. Like the Smith volume story in the previous volume, which I believe ran in the magazine, it is it is very dark. Um and my suspicion slash feeling is in some ways it may be considered ahead of its time because it is uh, much more grim, I think. Like even even the laughs are uh, in Roadkill are among some of the darker, darker uh, bits of material. Yes, yeah. So. Smith is Smith is oddly. We talked last time about Smith is being oddly prescient, mm-hmm. or I should say, two episodes ago, because last time we did restricted files. Thank you. Uh, but in in case files nineteen, we talked about Smith being an oddly prescient writer, mm-hmm. uh, in that some of his use of an omniscient narrator mm. kind of like is something the Wagner will do later. Mm-hmm. But you're right, Smith Smith does feel oddly ahead of his time, but very good like it, it yes. feels like, it mm-hmm. feels like dread in the same way that the wagner material in this book feels like dread and honestly that the, the other writers don't really get rennie actually comes pretty close the magazine material in this is far better than the 2018 material oh yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it's it's actually shocking the difference in in quality between the two things which are ostensibly being you know maybe not written by the same people, but edited by the same people. Mm-hmm. And and there should be a, a greater, you know, level of, of quality crossover. And, and there's not. Well, you know, I think, although I could be wrong, that I get the sense that for the most part, the editors worked much, much harder, perhaps, on trying to bring the level, the quality of the art up during this era. Cause I think, I think although the art in some cases doesn't always fry my burger, I think there is some stronger stuff in this volume, like overall art wise, the same way that I kind of, the Garth Ennis volumes just generally made me want to stab my eyes out. I think, I think both the 2008, the 2000 AD stuff is art-wise very strong. And when you get to the magazine, it there's, um, as we will no- undoubtedly be discussing, some amazing stuff there. Um, my th- yes, I can't wait to talk about some of the magazine material, oh, I should say. Yeah. And I think there's at least one story that both of us are going to be like, I can't believe that actually ran. Yeah. Multiple issues. But yes. uh, let's start with the 2000s. Let's. So can I talk about the thing that basically why I had some, uh, uh, if not outright expletives, at least certainly a strong string of pejoratives when talking about this before we officially came on air, is that I kind of wanted to ask you, as someone who was in the UK at the time, like, kind of like, what was going on? Because Case Files 20 is, while maybe not the best material, it is by far the most consistently racist volume of Judge Dredd, the complete Case Files. Uh, if it wasn't for the Wagner stuff, but like 
Book of the Dead is Book of um, the Dead is shocking. Book of the Dead is, yeah. is like genuinely shocking. Uh, it feels like, in the worst way, mm-hmm. a Silver Age, yes, like, comic. Yeah, like it, it's casual racism. It's it's yeah. But not only that, the the you know getting back to the, the idea of a Silver Age comic, the Frankenstein division, mm-hmm. the, the sort of the Russian. You know, comedy names and 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 portrayal there is is again just kind of shocking. Mm-hmm. I mean, you you've got you've got Book of the Dead, which is horrific towards like the Egyptians and pulling an exotic uh, Occidental thing that is grotesque. You've got Frankenstein Division, which is utter bullshit and seems to revel in nothing more than the killing of Russians. You have Sugar Beat which is a hugely <laughs> five part prog that is that is like offensive yeah, it, it, multiple it, times per page over offensive in ways that again you can't quite believe was coming out in the mid 90s yeah yeah just really it reads like the sort of stuff that people were kind of doing for a laugh like in the comics back before action practically the the manchu candidate spins as the title would would suggest ends up spinning from a the shocking twist ending is like oh it probably wasn't a wally squad coup it was probably the implanted chinese doing a coup and uh i mean just throw in uh the some of the stuff that's going on in in wagner where oh once you throw in cursed earth mutants and an alien invader that shows up to to re- reduce the city to rubble, you just find yourself kind of going, what the fuck was in the drinking water in the UK that there is such a fear of the outsider that you either have hundreds of pages of ironic racism or um, a lot of more quote-unquote serious... Oh, the outsiders, all they want to do is get into our country and live a good life. However, they're horrible and destructive and we can't let them near us, you know? Yeah, it's shocking in such a way that it doesn't seem real, for mm-hmm. want of a better way of putting it. Mm-hmm. Like, like it, it's we've talked before about the greatest argument against the Wagner and Grant era. Mm-hmm. It's their casual racism. Yeah. But here, it doesn't even feel casual. No. Like, the overwhelming racism. Yes. Of the material here. Yeah, yeah. You know, exactly. and, and and the different levels of that racism. Mm-hmm. Because you're right, Sugar Beet is just one horrific stereotype after another. Mm-hmm. But Frankenstein Division is a different type of thing. Yeah. Frankenstein Division is more targeted and more cartoonish. Mm-hmm. But because it's cartoonish, almost easier to be like, well, he's he's doing it tongue in cheek. Well, yeah, you know, and then there's and then there's Book of the Dead, which you know what the the living shit, right? And so, I mean, I'm very aware that there is there's a standard white guy problem of white guys in their twenties. You know, we've had to look down the barrel of ironic racism and racist hipster racism that was well, a thing and is a thing you know well and again you you've got to bear in mind like you said what is happening in britain at this time it's it's the brit pop era okay okay so you have 
cool Britannia, quote unquote, mm-hmm. you have a new patriotic pride question mark uh, or a, a new confidence in uh, like ladism we talked about ladism here mm-hmm, mm-hmm, before mm-hmm. right ladism which was was basically a rebranding of incredibly retrogressive attitudes right you know all of a sudden it was okay to be sexist and racist because you were doing it with a knowing wink yeah Exactly. But that didn't actually change anything. Mm-hmm. You know, you're still being sexist. You're still being racist. Yes. It's just that you're telling everyone else and yourself that you know better. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't really do anything in in practical terms. Right. And I don't know how much of that can be attached to this. But, for example, at this point in, in 2000s publishing history, 2000 is trying to go towards the lad market mm-hmm. you know, there were there were there were it, it's around now or maybe a couple of years later there's the the television campaign for 2008 that the editors were appalled by where it was basically targeted as well girls will never read this this is a boys comic mm-hmm. there's something like the slogan was something along the lines of like girls just don't get it mm-hmm. you know uh, and that was their fucking television ad right right so i think there there is a lot the, I think the, the flip side of that is also weirdly a constriction, at least as far as 2000 AD goes, in that I feel that, for example, Book of the Dead, you, you, mentioned, you mentioned the Silver Age, uh, right? Can you talk a little bit about that? Because I want to make sure I'm not jumping ahead or misunderstanding you. It feels Silver Age to me in that it feels at once a completely outlandish non-Judge Dread tech take Mm -hmm. the idea of judge dread going somewhere for a summit of international judges and meeting like the international judges who are just like him but slightly different because they're ethnic stereotypes right feels silver age in and of itself Mm -hmm. uh but also the plotting feels very silver age Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. do you know what i mean it feels very much like well our guy is the toughest and therefore he's going to beat him but that's why because he's the toughest that's why they're after him you know it feels very simplistic in a way that i think Dread as we like to to imagine him or understand him is not, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. like it, it it feels lazy in a way that Wagner's doesn't. Yes. Yeah, I agree. I think there's laziness. I wonder if there is an element to which many of these stories feel uh, as a little bit like and maybe this is where the the sort of winking racism kind of comes in um they are being deliberately crafted toward an audience and i kind of feel in a way that that the judge the 2000 ad stories in this book with um with at least the exception of roadkill are kind of the thing of like tell a story that a 12 year old boy would find awesome that's that's really interesting that you say that because I was going to ask who you thought the the audience is because in this book the 2008 stories feel like they're skewing much younger, much simpler than the magazine stories. Yeah, yeah, very and I much. I think so. it's because the, I don't think it's because the magazine is all of a sudden skewing older. It's that it feels like 2008 is skewing younger again, with the exception of the John Smith thing. Yeah, 
Agreed. But Agreed. you look at, like, I Hate Christmas. Mm-hmm. You look at Frankenstein Division. Yeah. You look at Sugar Beets. Like, Sugar Beet feels like a kid's story if you if you can overlook the racism. Well, or if you can... even with the racism, it reminds me of the ca- casual racism that people grew up with. And we're kind of like, oh, yeah, but, I mean, you know, it didn't affect me. It's fine. Yeah, yeah. You know? But, but it, feels too, it feels like dreads is all of a sudden in the 2008 strip trying to skew younger. Yes, absolutely. In a way that honestly is not a good look. Yeah, I for, think so as for well. The character and for the strip. Yep. And I say that as someone who thought that, don't get me wrong, the majority of 2008 stuff in this book is not good. But like Manchu Candidate is not that bad. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, Roadkill, Roadkill is a good strip. Um, but, but it all feels... I don't know if they, do you think that they're trying to make the strip appeal to younger readers because doesn't that feel at odds with with the ladism? I mean, so I think that that the I think you one might say that if the lads are trying to tell their story to the kids, you know what I mean? Like it's it's sort of lad infused. I think you kind of get some takes that are like this, but maybe I'm being thrown off. Maybe the kid thing is more just the idea that these guys have been handed a um, mandate to more or less make it simple. Although I think that there is a very strong emphasis in, in the 2000 AD stories to kind of make them, feel uh for less of a want of a better term interesting they're supposed to be they're like they're all of them are kind of hooky i'm what i'm going to do because i think what's nice about volume 20 a little frustrating for me when i was trying to keep track of who was doing what is they break the contents they've got credits pages um, and they've got one credits page for the 2000 AD stories, and then they've got one credits page for the magazine. And I was thinking, Graham, in a departure, what I would do or we could do, since it's sort of broken up that way, is just quickly say the names, credits, yeah, of the list of stories. So you've got Roadkill by John Smith with art by Peter Doherty, where the gist is a very, very old couple who are too old to essentially drive, unfortunately are hoodwinked into buying more or less a self-driving car that uh, due to various shenanigans is possessed by the spirit of a horrific killer who's out for revenge. You have Book of the Dead by Grant Morrison and Mark Miller with art by Dermot Power in which Dread is part of an exchange program and is in Egypt to see more or less how the judges there do their thing. And their thing is done very much as if um, Morrison and Miller remembered how cool it was to read about mummies for the first time. (laughs) There's I Hate Christmas, which really is the third story in a bewildering trilogy in which Mark Miller writes stories that shows that he um, doesn't quite understand dread more or less understands Christmas, but understands that Carlos Esquera is awesome. 
There's Frankenstein Division, which follows up on that revelation by Miller and Iscara, in which a Russian Frankenstein monster that is a super unstoppable Terminator type comprised of all the a pile of Soviet judges that were killed in the apocalypse war because they were all literally killed by dread. And it was the last thing they've ever seen. They come to mega city one to wreak havoc and, and literally brutalize dread. There's crime prevention by Mark Miller with art by Nick Percival, uh, which is a story about a kid who wants to be a judge and, of course, in the pro the application process uh, comes to a far more different realization. There is Sugar Beat by Alan McKenzie and John Tomlinson with uh, art by the dear departed Ron Smith that is mega many parts too many where Judge Dredd is basically sent to Central America to break the sugar chain that is bringing the demon sugar into Mega City 1 and uh, literally leaves no uh, uh, offensive Latin American stereotype uh, unturned. There's Top Gun by Mark Miller and Ron Smith, which is the one where uh, between this and Under Siege, I get deeply confused. Do you remember which one is which? Top Gun is the one about the new gun. It's the one about the new Oh, gun right, right, right. Exactly, exactly. Which, again, seems very Dread, where Dread gets an upgrade to his weapon system with uh, predictable results in a way. And then Under Siege, which... Uh, I honestly don't remember Under Siege, and that's not a joke. No, I uh, get Under it. Siege and Crime Prevention are two stories that I know I read because I've read this book two times this week. Right. I don't remember Under Siege at all. Uh, I genuinely oh, don't. Under Siege is is a Mark Miller and Paul Pert revisiting in the most unimaginative way the Judge the 2000 AD Judge Dread trope um, genre the. The the apartment that is taken over and is killing its inhabitants. Genre. Oh yeah, this, this, yeah, the self aware, the self aware, self aware apartment, apartment genre, and it brings nothing new to it and is un <laughs> in any way, in any way whatsoever. Uh, and then we get to the Manchu Candidates by uh, Tomlinson, and I'm getting no, it's Alan McKenzie. Sorry, Manchu candidate is Alan McKenzie. Oh goes. yes, and Mick Austin, uh, McKenzie writing. I guess again in Sunny Steel Grave, I believe. Yes. Scales of Justice. Oh right, and the Manchu candidate is in which it's the Manchurian candidate. Yeah, it, basically, a, 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 judge, a judge is trying to kill uh, Chief Judge Magruder. Yes. Um, followed by Scales of Justice, which is a script by John Higgins and art by John Higgins, which again is the falls in another visitation of the judge dread genre which is um violent mutants in the cursed earth emulate the judges trope uh and then we have oh, well it isn't it isn't jeff scales of justice is about the cadets who've crashed in the cursed earth and gone native yeah i mean it's the same thing <laughs> it's it's the same thing. I mean, honestly, it's just it's it's a shame because it's it's fucking John Higgins and it's yeah, but it's, and it's it really just, bad. It's a bad it's story. Just John Higgins is not a writer. No, but... well, that's it. I mean, it really fell apart. I was like, wow, this is. I guess this is what happens. And then there's Enemy Below, which is by John Tomlinson again. I think writing at Sunny Steel Grave with art by uh, Clint Langley, which is essentially. It's 
it's amazing. Yeah. Here's why it's amazing. Mm -hmm. In Case Files 19, there's a story called Inferno. (laughs) And in Inferno, Chief Judge Magruder gets thrown off the building. Yeah. That happens roughly 40 issues before Enemy Below. Yes. In between those issues, you see Chief Judge Magruder running around. She is giving a speech, for example, in Manchu Candidate. Yes. Just like five issues earlier, where someone tries to kill her. Then, in Enemy Below, somehow she is still comatose after Inferno. Yes. Yeah. I mean, it It is... is, I mean, a shocking continuity fuck-up from someone who was editing the comic. Yeah. Yeah. I My only guess, if I had to guess, was... They gave the well, script too long to draw. Exactly. And 2000 AD being what it was, they could not figure out. A, they couldn't they couldn't not run the pages because they paid for it. So and they couldn't figure out a way to rewrite it. Me personally, I would have figured out a way to put, you know, Magruder in a coma by getting shot in the Manju candidate because I literally was. But there's too many references to being thrown off the wall and so that is the b story the a story and again this is very much an inferno follow-up um they need to get into the hall of justice that dread had ordered flooded in inferno yeah in inferno it is still flooded and essentially a horrific creature from the black lagoon style creature is in there fucking up judges um, but manages to not fuck up Judge Dredd, despite him being absolutely no different underwater than any of the other judges that got fucked up. So that yeah, is... And, the... and Dredd basically comes out and goes, I, I'm tougher. Yeah, basically. <laughs> I mean, it really is. So it's so those are our 11 stories. I thought it was worth running down. Now we can sort of do our thing, and people are, oh, okay. So Yeah, but... you'll actually know what we're talking about. Exactly. Exactly. They are they are terrible. Yeah. And see, that's <laughs> the thing that's kind of interesting is I feel like from those descriptions or even the lengths to which I I wrote them, they're they're all relatively easy, high concepts. Some of them yes. are very easy because they have been done, you know, five or six times in 2000 AD. But Frankenstein division in and of itself is not especially a terrible idea and of course it's got carlos escara art so it's very easy to mistake it for good but it it is terrible yes yeah i mean frankenstein division also is one of those things where you realize that mark miller isn't a fan Mm -hmm. and that the editors aren't really paying attention because frankenstein division is an impossible story Mm -hmm. how can you frankenstein uh like a demon monster together from the bodies of dead judges who were in a city that was destroyed by nuclear explosion. Well, I mean that okay, so so this is this is my understanding is and I could be completely wrong because the whole thing was baffling. What you have to <laughs> assume for it to even work is during the apocalypse war Mega City 1 is invaded by Sov judges. Those judges, those judges get killed. And then after Dread bombs, you know, Sov City 1, in part of their reparation slash rebuilding of the peace, you assume the dead bodies of the Russian soldiers were shipped back to uh, Russia, 
and then Frankenstein. Because it is literally, the idea is that they die at the hands of dread. And there's one or two, at least one panel where it's supposed to look like the their POV is their eyes staring at dread's uh, badge as literally the last thing that they see. So that is my understanding. They were the ones who were killed in all the ground skirmishes that Dredd led in the early half of the Apocalypse War and then somehow end up back in Russia where they can then be stitched together into this thing, is my belief. That's a stretch, but it's also the only way the story can make sense, so let's go with it. Sure, I agree. I agree. Uh, but no, you're, you're right. All of these stories have high concept hooks mm-hmm. to some greater or lesser degree. We've talked in the past about Miller seems to Miller's understanding of Dread seems to come more from the Daily Star strips mm. than 2008. Right. And there's uh, it might be Crime Prevention or it might be Top Gun, where that that's really obvious. Mm. Where Miller is again writing and his captions are like Dread waits for no man exclamation point yes and a sequence right. and then it's like Dread is hard you mm. know uh, and and I feel that's very obvious in these stories because when you're writing a newspaper strip you have to work on that concept Mm -hmm. right Mm -hmm. you're not going to be able to get away with like a a continuity heavy strip or something that is not going to catch the casual reader right and viewed through that lens Mm -hmm. i think miller's material here at least makes more sense Mm -hmm. book of the dead i hate christmas frankenstein division you know crime prevention and top gun even i mean top gun Dread is testing a new gun and it shit. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Right? Right. Like, is mm-hmm. I mean, first of all, I think it's a story that Wagner actually did. Wagner or Graham did, mm. but but also, it's an it's incredibly easy to understand mm-hmm. that concept. Yeah, yeah. You no, know, like it's it's right there. Right. It, it it does practically write itself. Mm-hmm. As you said, like the problem with all of these is the is the execution. Mm-hmm. That that in in every single case, the execution doesn't just not seem to understand who Dread is. It seems to misunderstand the appeal of Dread and who the Dread reader is. Yes. Yeah, I mean, it really does... Um, I've mentioned in earlier volumes that Miller is in deeply, deeply uncomfortable uh, with the idea of Dread. It's fascinating that a guy who really was able to lean in on his work with the ultimates and with Marvel leaning into the idea of, whoa, but yeah, wouldn't it be funny if they were fascist, you know, um, is way too uncomfortable. There is no way that dread can be understood as anything but a villain in all of Miller's stories. And, but But and this is the part that I find so frustrating is he's not even a nuanced villain, which in that sense means it's a huge step backwards for Dread, you know, to see these stories. Um, And then if you strip that out, like Book of the Dead is like does not work on multiple levels. And the first of it, it really is, is that, that Dread might as well just be um, Big Dave in a fancy hat, 
You know, he is just like, I'm the toughest. Huh? Well, you cried like a girl, did you? You know, to these guys, to anyone who shows any emotion in the series. And of course, ultimately, all of the Egyptian judges, well, I don't know about all of them, because frankly, when you reread the story, it's like, why, if it's a conspiracy to bring Dread in so that they can suck his power and transfer it to the undying mummy dude, um, why do they have to kill so many of their own men? Is this a sub-conspiracy within the Egyptian judges? And if it is, how did they get Dread over there? And there's there's just one throwaway line, which is the idea that Dread um, is someone that they're fixated on because he has the original bloodline of the Judda in him, and therefore it's super important that he is the guy that the, the mummy um, absorbs his life essence of. But, I mean, it just, it just don't add up. It literally came from the, to me, the closest you can get is, is that, you know, um, Miller and Morrison were high and over takeout. One of them mentioned the fact that Dred's hat looks like an, a Pharaoh's hat. And they just went from there. Cause the, cause the Egyptian judges, again, the weird part is, is, is that it is, somehow so embarrassingly retrograde <laughs> in in a way that it is somewhat where where the other cultures are um embarrassing but alluded to you know but but at this particular point in those particular stories it to me it very much when you mentioned silver age i was like oh i kind of know what you mean because this is like reading a world's finest comic from like 1953 where like Superman and Batman have to do six impossible tasks. And one of them takes them to Egypt and it looks like it's the 14th century. Like, you know, so it's, it's kind of amazing when you see that the, you get to the chief judge, mm-hmm. the, the, the reveal of the chief judge is, it's again, I, you know, I, I said shocking before, but like, it's kind of amazing that this is meant to be the what twenty second century, yeah. And you know the chief judge is shown on his throne, surrounded by you know the the tiger and the slave, yeah. And and it's it's amazing, right? Yeah, and not not amazing in a good way. No, no. But it, it is so. It is Tintin levels of respectful to other cultures. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it is. And it and it is by um dudes who absolutely 100% should know no better, better, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And and so and that, that's the thing. Mm-hmm. The the Miller stuff, well maybe not the Miller stuff, but the stuff that Morrison is attached to in yeah. Dreads feels like he's talking down to his audience in a way that like cuz again, this is the same time that Invisibles is happening. Right. 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 Yeah. The that Morrison would never do what this Morrison does. I, I, I mean, I, I would. I, I think on the one hand, you are right. I think on the, the Invisibles also had his problems. Yes, he very with, much did. Uh, cultural imperialism, shall we say? Yeah, 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 yeah. So but still, mm-hmm. I feel mm-hmm. that I still feel that that Morrison would make fun of the the way that future Egypt is portrayed here. Yes, and and. And in that sense, you really do get, and that's the thing that bothers me, is the idea that both of those guys 
know better and are precisely doing what they know they shouldn't. Like you said, either as the, oh, we're lads, we're having a, we're having a lad laugh and, you know, collecting a lad check. But it really is, you know, it's not cool. It's not great. Um, You know, the thing that is interesting is it is because it is so blatant, though, there is that level at which like it I don't want to say I don't want to say it works because, among other things, they misunderstand dread. But at least it gives I mean, that's racism usually has a lot of, you know, visually enticing um, displays, you know what sure, I mean? Sure, yeah. And, and, and there is a lot of this but where it's because like, it's because, because so much racism is propaganda for, yeah, for better words. Exactly. And exactly. so it has to be, uh, it has to be attractive mm-hmm. on a, on a surface level. Yeah. Yeah. You know, because how else, cause how else are you going to convince people to, to give in to the worst impulses, to give in to the hate? Right. You know, right. you have to make it appealing, quote unquote. Well, yeah, exactly. Like the, the, it's part of part of what's convincing, you know. And there's there's always a little bit of the way that racism gets dressed up in ways that confuse. So when you see that page of say the revelation of the chief judge, you're like, wow, that is some fucked up shit. But a, the page looks great, and B, they're like, yeah, but see, doesn't he look cool? He looks powerful, you know? And that's classic racist 101 stuff. It's like, no, no, we're not disrespecting this guy. He's totally a powerful... Yeah, um, he looks like a badass. He, if, we exactly. being, if we were being racist, why would you make him such a threat to our guy who's the hero? Exactly, exactly. So there is just a, a ton of that. Did you, I wanted to ask you because I don't know if you had read City of the Dead uh, first time around or sorry book. Of I, the Dead. I didn't read it. I didn't read it first time around, but I've read this and Crusade in a later collection. Oh, okay. Uh, maybe about five years ago for the first time. Okay, because um, one of the things that I the the one part where I was like, oh, it can, maybe this is what they're going to do, and it's kind of quote unquote clever was the the end of the beginning segment where Dredd uh, comes to Egypt and gets to meet the judges and see how they do things. Like the very last page has uh, a patrolling judge killed by a, a mysterious mummy creature. And that mysterious mummy creature sees Dredd arrive and is like, yes, Dredd, yes, with multiple S's in there. Part of me was like, Okay, because, you know, Morrison can sometimes be a thoughtful guy if you get him past the original level of, like, a uh, uh, judge's hat looks like pharaoh hat. Is, like, I was like, oh, like, what if Judge Death, you know, considering the ancient Egyptians did worship among all the other many gods, did have a god of death, and what if that god of death was Judge Death, right? And I was like... Oh, well, at least I can sort of see where they're going here. And then, of course, they don't go That's with not that. That's where it goes at all. <laughs> no, no. And sort of in that same Frankenstein division kind of way, a huge chunk of the story is dread dealing with a impossible, unstoppable beast that basically pummels him for pages and pages and pages until the final moment where he t- 
turns where, where the he's tides. not pummeled. Yeah. Which, if you think about it, is also basically the way that Inferno runs. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that is that's very true. So it, it's it's the way that that Miller and Morrison seem to understand a quote unquote big threat to dread. Yeah, that it, that it's a physical threat, and that it's a threat where basically it can't be defeated until it can. Mm-hmm. Right, exactly, and it's more or less time to wrap it up and go home. Part of me was like, at least the finale of Book of the Dead is set up in such a point that it's kind of like, oh, it it kind of more or less works. Like, whereas Frankenstein Division, I, again, I it's like I just black out. Like, I'm like, <laughs> I don't, what, how does he, what the, you know. Yeah. Mm-hmm. About Frankenstein Division and Book of the Dead, and especially Sugar, uh, Sugar Rush, is that mm-hmm. what it's called? Uh, yeah. Uh, is, is that all of them, Sure, sorry, sugar beet. Thank you. All of them are are far too long. Right. But in each of them, the quote unquote climax feels like it begins in one episode and ends in the other episode. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like even the climax feels too long. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's especially true in Book of the Dead. Mm. Book of the Dead feels like it is at least at least one episode too long at the end. Never mind maybe an episode too long at the start as well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Sugar Beat just feels inhumanly long. Well, yes. shockingly, like you can't believe it is still going on. Absolutely, uh, it uh, is. It is. Yeah. You know, Frankenstein Division is Frankenstein Division is actually the shortest of all of them, right? Frankenstein Division is only like four episodes. I think so. I Whereas think so. Book of the Dead is eight, I think, and Sugar Beat is six. Right. But all of them feel like they come up with a threat. Mm-hmm. The threat takes too long to. I mean, really be established in any dramatic... Yeah, to show itself, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then takes too long to wrap up. Yeah. And also wraps up too quickly at the same time. Because right. again, because the Dead and Frankenstein Division are both stories where, like, you, you can't beat the monster until you can. Right, right. Well, I think, I think for me, uh, I think that it... I would say, make a lot of cases as to why the Book of the Dead climax makes sense to me and you know for a variety of reasons but but at the same time it's kind of not worth arguing about i should also or even really spending any more time on i should (laughs) mention that of the three uh and counting maybe there are more uh miller escara christmas stories i hate christmas in this one is by far the most objectionable in that I mean, not only is there the ridiculously blatant racism of the character in the American, the African Dust Bowl, who's tied themselves the stowaway from Simba City, but you, <laughs> you also literally get that horrific. How about a little festive smack on the lips? L- literally, once you see the the word balloon. You who judge dread, you know you know you are in trouble. And so the last page of of I Hate Christmas is again super, super like we all know that part of why Mark Miller has the career that he does is that he literally has no shame. So it is impossible to say 
it with any expectation of reality that Mark Miller should be ashamed of himself. But Mark Miller should really be ashamed of himself. I mean, for a myriad of tasks. But even if he had done nothing else, even if he'd gone on to to like, I don't know, save children from, you know, the classic rushed into an orphanage and and saved uh, children from a fire, which I have no doubt, like one of his friends in the Scottish Times breathlessly recounted at some point in there that he actually did. (laughs) He he should be ashamed for I hate Christmas uh, exceptionally. I'm still appalled and just downright like angry at him. So. I mean that I I I just want to say yes. <laughs> no, it, it's it's it, what's funny is I hate Christmas is you're not wrong. You are not wrong, and it's somehow I hate Christmas is still less offensive to me than something like Sugar Beet. Sugar Beet, and honestly, I hate Christmas still feels slightly better a story than something like Scales of Justice, which is just uh, Scales of Justice is not a good story. Yeah. Well, wait. Okay. Which one? Scales of Justice is the John Higgins one. Oh yeah, the Higgins one. No, no, no. Exactly. Well, because 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 I... Scales of Justice feels inept in a way that the Miller stuff, although Miller stuff is not good, and uh, sing hateful sounds maybe a bit too melodramatic. Sure. But but you know what I'm getting at. Yes, I do like, know. Scales yeah. of Justice feels inept. No. Scales of Justice feels. Skills of Justice feels kind of amazing that it got published. No, agreed, agreed. Because it just it 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 really does. Like Miller's stuff, as much as I dislike it, you know, I've said things in other volumes where I mean, frankly, the sad fact is even the shit here that is horrible and hateful is more interesting to me than the Ennis material was. It just it just is. It, I both agree and disagree mm-hmm. in part because I do have, I I find myself really, I have a lot of problems with the, the way that it feels that dread is as a strip is being used to uh, express an attitude towards the world that is is at odds with what Wagner was doing. Agreed. And I feel that I feel that Ennis, for all of his failures, and he had many, was at least aware of what Wagner was trying to do, even if he couldn't do it himself. And it feels like Miller and Morrison, and I guess Tomlinson and Mackenzie, but maybe not to the same extent, are are completely ignoring the the subtlety of Wagner stuff and instead just being like ha you get it it's funny because he's he's a badass and he beats people up yeah no i um i do feel that that i i, I see your point for me um part of it would be it could very well come down to if you had many of the artists here doing some of the Ennis stories and some of them were, it was just, it was also several years earlier and they were just not as professional and, you know, as they were when they get to here. I don't know. It's really hard for me to say, because I think that, I think that 
even though there were points where this where the first half of case files 20 felt like i was being punished um i wasn't bored you know and i guess that that is something and that's that is actually that is not true sugar beet i was going to say if sugar beet was bored? not offensive it was genuinely boring or yeah, or like honestly the, all of the quote unquote sunny seal sunny silgrave stuff is boring nah, i didn't think i didn't think the manchu candidate was but definitely the the creature from the black lagoon shit again it helps that i thought that it looked visually interesting i i thought it was ugly i didn't like looking at it but I liked looking at it more than the guy who was drawing some of Ennis's um Sure. It's like stories. it's no Simon Colby, right? Yeah, right. You know, it was like, yeah, it's it at least it looks a little bit better than a rejected page from Chips and Wizard, you know? And so I, I uh so for me the the first half is was genuinely excruciating. And if that had been the end of if that had been the end of it, I literally would have been like, "Grant, please, you let's switch. Let's just exactly. switch. Let's 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 not do Drock anymore." Yeah, exactly. I, I, that, that's funny that you say that because I was, uh, it, I I you know the way these books are laid out, you do the 2018 material first, then you do the magazine. Yeah, and I got to it was it was the Higgins material, mm-hmm. and I was like, "I'm I'm fucking done." Mm-hmm. Like I, I know it gets better. I know it gets better. Yeah, but I'm done. I can't do any more of this. Yeah, this, this is this is exhausting, and honestly, it's kind of depressing. You know, we did Baxter Building, and Baxter Building, you have Lee and Kirby for ten years, and it's amazing. Yes, and then Kirby leaves, and the book goes downhill mm-hmm. quickly. Mm-hmm. That's true. Yeah, this this feels somehow worse. Yeah, I agree. I agree. And it's tough to say to f- why. Why? Yeah. yeah. It is. Yeah. It is actually tough to say why. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it, it's as if you went from Lean Kirby to the DeFalco Paul Ryan run. Right. Right. Yeah. You know, with nothing in between. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it, it is. It's a, it's a, it's a bit of a brutal shock, but I think there's also something that is, uh, I don't know. I mean, uh, so yes, when I got to the first story of the Dread magazine, it's a dreadful life by Jim Alexander and Robbie Morrison with art by, you know, the amazing Colin McNeil. I was like, I still wasn't into it. It's a, it's, no, it is a much it... better thing than the, the majority, like I said, with the, with the exception of the first story. Oh, the John Smith. Yeah, yeah. The John Smith story. Uh, but, but what's interesting is for the 2018 material, the first story in the book is the best. Everything is downhill from there. Yeah. Whereas it's a dreadful life is by far the worst of the magazine material in this book. Yes. Yes, I agree. But I, it's... I like, like markedly so yeah and so when i first was there i was like ah this is painful um i don't know if i can make it through and then as soon as wagner uh and pete doherty's bury my knee at wounded heart starts you know it's i literally felt myself being pulled back from the abyss of of it it helps that Burying My Knee at Windows Art is actually a really good story. Yes. 
yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's great. I mean, like, like it's not. It's not just that it is better than anything else you've read in the book so far. Mm-hmm. It's a really good story yes. in in and of its own, in and of itself. Yeah, you know, it it's Wagner really on on good form. Mm-hmm. Very much, and, so. and features the dreads that you and I have come to uh, embrace as dreads. Right. You know, it's it's not the the Miller or the the you know the the Ennis version of dread. Right. Both of which, in their own ways, were were uh, cardboard cutouts. Mm-hmm. Like one of the things that makes Barry Many Wounded Heart such a good story is that it's literally dread going. Oh no, we're wrong. Like I'm going to be kind for once. You know, there's multiple levels I think that make Barry. Bury my knee at Wounded Heart. Interestingly enough to me, it, and it's the other thing that I'm like, oh, what the hell's going on in 93 other than, you know, maybe some of these guys had just been around for a while. But it is it is a weird, uh, in a way, mirror image of the John Smith story, you know, where um, Smith's story is about two senior citizens, a couple who are old and more or less fall out of um fall between the cracks and are are more yes. or less actively all but actively crushed by the madness that is dread on one side and the lunatics and criminals on the other and the 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 two differences that i can think of is is again um smith's story is an action packed um ultra violent story with a with a lot lot of of dark laughs and burying my knee at wounded heart is i think a lovely story it's such a good story because it nails the tone of you know kind of loneliness and despair like the color palette in bury my knee wounded heart is is beautiful it so to me it's a very good story until you get to the final scene with dread and the old man who's lost his wife and all he is trying to do is get her buried because he knows she did not want to go through resic and that moment is fabulous because you literally not only do you see dread be the dread that we're used to being, but you actually it's it's like a light shifts from left to right across dread. You see three sides of him. You literally see a side of dread that I don't think you've ever seen before in between the two, which is at one point, you know, you get to the old man who is um, you know, please, I beg you, what right have you to do this? Can't you let her be laid to rest with dignity? Do you take even that from us? And Dread says, as Dread would, the law's the law. It's there to be obeyed. And the old man says, don't you think I'd pay if I could? I'm a poor man. I could never afford a place like this. I'm sorry, this is the penultimate scene. Is that justice? One law for the rich, another for the likes of me. Is that fair? And Dredd says, sometimes life isn't fair, me. Which is the first, you know, is not, we've heard that from Dredd before. 
but we never have ever, at least if we have, I've forgotten, heard him say, I'm sorry, I'm just doing my duty. In the past when he said that, he said it as a way to shut down yeah. dissent. Yeah. You know, people, It's it, in his view, it's been a response to people whining. Right. Right. Yeah. And here, it's an apology. Yeah. Well, but there's also, how do I put it? I'm just doing my duty is... Of all the things that Dredd has has never said before, was he never said, I was, I'm just following orders. You know yeah. what I mean? And this is the closest you get to him literally taking the moral, moral cowardice way out of saying, like, I'm just doing my job. And then... But, but, th- but then... Yes. He, he doesn't. That's right. Like then he 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 basically says no this is wrong he makes a stand that's right yeah he he you makes know, the final scene which is shocking and stunning and amazing and so even the downbeat ending the downbeat the joke panel that has been the joke panel in the first half of this book has some sort of relief or elation to it I think. For me, because in a way it's like, oh, thank God, at least Dredd hasn't lost all of his humanity. At least he did do the right thing and then turned around and punished people who probably didn't deserve it on top of that. You know, Mm -hmm. so. But there's there's something uh, in terms of the uh, and this is perhaps going to sound ridiculous considering what we're talking about you know we're talking about judge dread which is on the one hand a very subtle piece of fiction on the other <laughs> hand really not subtle piece of fiction that's right and in the first half of the book astonishingly not yeah but there is for me at least an emotional release in seeing dreads say stop the belt mm-hmm. and then say no we are wrong yes this woman should be buried right and use the use his reputation Right. Use the idea that he is this tough guy, not to to berate the citizen, mm-hmm. but to berate the judge who's complaining to him about the cause. That's right. You know, there is something there that is like I did get a feeling of release from that. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, and that's the thing that's sort of funny in a way to me is that. The fact that that is the point that that I feel at that moment, the way that most people feel in the movie trailer where Peter Gabriel's Salisbury Hill, you know, hits its chorus and and suddenly the sun shines over the hill. You know, it feels like a tremendous sense of relief and release and and enough of a happy ending in that sense that that the little downbeat note to me is still just kind of a, Oh yeah, well it's okay. Crisis averted somehow, you know, um, because, because of what the crisis really is. Uh, weirdly enough, it ends up being a story as is so frequently the case with Wagner, where you think you're getting one story and you're kind of getting another. It starts off as I think many of the best dread stories do being a story about a inhabitant of Mega City One and their life and what happens to them. And then at the very end, it does morph into being a story about dread, 
a story about yeah. a moment in Dredd's life that is a shocking relief because you literally see two pages earlier um dread hit a depth that you never thought that he would hit you know to me which is him being like i'm just doing my job i'm just following orders you know but but even within this story that's treated incredibly well mhm Sometimes yes. life isn't fair, and then he turns, and his entire face is in shadow. That's right. When he says, "I'm sorry," just like you can feel his own shame. That's right. That. Absolutely. Like that, Doherty, who I've given shit to on this podcast before, plays that scene beautifully. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. He really, really does play that scene incredibly well. Mm-hmm. He knows exactly when to hide dread. Yes, yes, absolutely. Absolutely. So, and it's, it's interesting because there's a case to be made. If you look at the story, like it has, it goes through several different color palettes and the scene between knee and dread is in grays and blacks. And then interestingly enough, the, when you get to the scene in Resic, it comes back to color you know, the way it started and even more so, you know, it's vibrant now. Uh, so hey, Jeff, Jeff, yes. before we move on. Yes. I, I have one thing to say. It's not resic. Oh, is it recycle? Yeah. Cause it's recycling. Cycling. Of course. Of course it's recycle. It's just for whatever reason, every time I look at it, I'm like, yeah, cause I can't pronounce any fucking thing. Uh, thank you. Having corrected that, should we talk briefly? Should we do the quick name summary thing of each of the stories? Or are we planning in this hour, second hour of just talking about each of the stories either quickly uh, or not? Let's let's do the, the, the quick summary. I will do it this time. Okay. Uh, so the, there are seven stories from the magazine that are here. It, it's a Dreadful Life by Jim Alexander, Robbie Morrison, and Colin McNeil, which is, as the name suggests, essentially an It's Wonderful Life riff and is throwaway. Mm-hmm. It looks nice, but honestly, it doesn't do much. Bury My Neat Wounded Heart, we just talked about, John Wagner and Peter Doherty, is a one-off and is great. Mm-hmm. It's, it's probably, you know, not to jump ahead, but it's probably my favorite story in the book. Mm-hmm. Um, you Are the Mean Machine follows. That's John Wagner and Greg Staples. And it is, it's, again, the name is pretty pretty suggestive. It's a, a mm-hmm. multiple choice. It's choose your own adventure if you're the mean machine with the added joke of there are no real options because the mean machine is dumb, <laughs> which is kind of funny. Mm-hmm. Like, as a, as a riff, it's kind of great. Mm-hmm. I got to be honest. Free Fall by John Wagner and Jim Vickers. Uh, is about a suicide and and what leads someone to suicide. Do the Wrong Thing by Gordon Rennie and Paul Pert is a Do the Right Thing riff and is... Jeff, what would you say to add to that? Because I've got to be honest, I like it and don't like it at the same time. Well... I think I think I feel I feel very similarly. The thing that I think is fascinating and sad is whereas the first half of the book uh, is filled with ridiculous amounts of casual racism. When I saw that do the wrong thing was on there, I was like, oh, God, no. Uh, <laughs> but interestingly enough, 
Um, uh, more or less, what ends up happening is Rennie only more or less uh, leaves out the entire racial dimension of do the yes. right thing, which is shocking and far from a corrective for the first half of the book as one might have hoped for, but is in fact just takes the idea of what if it is the hottest day of the year in Mega City One and how badly does all of that go as a result? And is, I think, in many ways, very good, in part because part of what I like about it is the heat is absolutely 100% artificial. The weather control has been cranked up as a result of it being the, what is it? It's the celebration of Mayor Dave's uh, birthday uh, or funeral? The, yes. or... Yeah, it's the, it's the anniversary of uh, Mayor Dave's death, isn't it? Yes, it's Mayor Dave's death. So... Um, for whatever reason, they've been ordered to crank the heat up as high as it can go. And um, uh, there are things that I like about it. Be the, I think the thing that I like a lot is, is that Rennie more or less moves the absurdity and stupidity and lunacy of Mega City One and turns it into something I think more recognizable to us, which is essentially a nonsensical, practically downright harmful bureaucratic decision. And as that causes everything to amplify to the point where Dredd and the two cadets that he are with are just more or less about to lose a stand down with the out of control, angry, sullen, overheated mess of Mega City One residents. The ceremony more or less ends at like, I don't remember what it is, seven o'clock, 7 p.m., 10 p.m., and suddenly it just starts to rain and everything, the tension dissipates and everything's over. That's actually one of the reasons why I don't like it. Oh really? Tell me more. Yeah, it feels like it is too too comedic an ending almost. Uh huh. It feels like it 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 builds the tension, and and I think it builds the tension in such a way that it is at once amusing, uh, but also tense. Yes, like it works as a ratcheting of dramatic tension, even as you see, you know, one of the the rookies faints, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know, from the heat. That's right. Uh, but it still builds as dramatic tension, and then just to have a one panel end by being like, they turned the rain back on felt a little bit too light for me. Mm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, I I see that. Whereas I think for me, part of what I liked about it was it was that, that in a way the resolution was as arbitrary as the problem. So I think there's, so for me it worked better, but I can see why it didn't work for you. And on the one hand, not my favorite of the magazine stories, but if we if we were to do the cruel, brutal game of separating separating out the Wagner stories out of this volume and then having to pick our favorites, do the wrong it, thing it jumps to the top three for me at least. Yeah. Yes, but we're also like that's not. So it's very not little. Yeah. Agreed. Agreed. Yeah, no, at that point, it literally is for me. It's like, okay, so it's John Smith and do the wrong thing 
yeah, and then and that's pretty much it. Pretty right? much it. <laughs> like uh, honestly, yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. That is that's absolutely right. There's part like I said. There's a little bit about the Manchu candidate that I seem to like until it until it goes really poorly at that last the where they turn out and find him because you know the Wally judge ends up doing damage to the bully in the in his block in a way that only a you know another judge could have um you know is just stupid was really bad and they're like oh this is our break find who that guy is it's just like <laughs> so so that's I'm, to do the I, wrong I, thing i should say like after do the right thing there's giant mm -hmm. which is a three-parter from john wagner and ian gibson yes and then there's howler by john wagner and mike and mick mcmahon We'll get to Howler in a second. Yes, yes, we will. Because because we definitely will. But of the of the magazine stories, the we talked about Bury My Neat Wintertar, Giant. I think Giant and Howler are the two I'd want to talk about the more. Absolutely, Giant. I think is great. Yeah. Oh, I absolutely. Like Giant mm -hmm. a lot. Mm -hmm. I think uh, as as the title suggests, it brings back Cadet Giant from Necropolis and also just for Necropolis in 2080. Um, but because Dread ages in real time, because the, the series is set in real time, he's he's now almost about to graduate from the Academy. Mm -hmm. And we get to see an older giant yeah. uh, in his final, his, his final exam, essentially, with, with Dread as, as his tutor. And it's... It's a really, it's a really nice character study that also works as an adventure. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and it, it feels yes. like a very subtle and yet very enjoyable and entertaining piece of writing. Well, I think there's also the surprise turn of it too, which is fabulous. The yeah, the villain is kind of when that rolls around, which I was not expecting. Right. It, well, especially considering the, the restrictive files we just read last month. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, it couldn't have been better timed in that way, in the way that it falls together. But it is, uh, yeah, no, it, again, it's sort of like burying my knee at Wounded Heart in a way. Giant is a story in which Dread weirdly shifts from the side stage to the center stage in an unexpected way. Yes. Um, and, and is, is pretty fabulous. I guess I feel since the story came out, you know, 27 years ago, we should be able to spoil the revelation of the villain, I suppose. Cause, or not, maybe you yeah, don't no, want no, to. No, no, we, yeah. we, I think we should just because it explains like one of the reasons why we're all surprised. Yeah. The villain is Walter the Wobot. Yes. Exactly. And uh, uh, essentially in the course of, of Giant doing the things that he's doing and investigating a murder, he and Dread uncover a robot conspiracy in which there is a religious cult um, centered around Call Me Kenneth. And uh, they follow the robot, robot that they have, have suspected um, uh, properly of malfeasance back to a secret meeting of which the leader is Walter the Wobot. And all the better than that, I think, comes the scene where Dread is basically like, oh, fuck. And 
in the course of crushing the robot rebellion, there is a there is a great scene where Walter's about to escape with another robot and Dread is, you know, right behind them. And 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 Walt, you know, the robot's like, come on, Walter, we can still get away. And Walter is like, no, there, I, if there's one thing I know, there's no escaping from Judge Dread, which is great because that's exactly what you'd expect him to say. And he's like, so you just got to shoot him in the ass. And then he pulls out an enormous gun and shoots Dread. And that is wonderful. Like, I just, I, words can't express how delightful that particular turn of events is for me. Well, but there's also, you know, it relates it to that. You also see Dread make bad judgment because of Walter. That's right. You know, which Giant calls him out on. And, and Dread, wonderfully, to Wagner's credit. Yes. Commends Giant for that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, it, we are, especially for those who have been reading the 2018 material, Dread is perfect. Dread doesn't make mistakes. And if Dread does make a mistake, he basically frowns down anyone who points it out. Mm-hmm. And here you have Wagner embracing that. Dread makes a mistake. Dread is called out for it. And he is like, well, you're right. I mm-hmm. did make a mistake. Thank you for pointing that out. Right. And again, it makes Dread more of an interesting character. Well, I think. Because, yeah, because it does. And because there's multiple reasons as to why. I could be wrong, but I feel essentially when Giant says, I'm going to have to uh, include your oversight in my report. And and like you said, Dread says, I would have failed you if you hadn't. So, you know, you go do it, Judge Giant, which is great. What What's funny about this is, again, the... This is, in a way, a blending of other things that we've seen in Dread before. We've seen Dread do his final exam of a cadet. We, I, I swear to God, we may have even set, seen something where, like, the cadet is more or less about to let Dread off the hook and and gets fucked for it. And it, yeah. and it, Freefall, which we passed over super quickly. Is a fine story for what it is. It's, but it know. feels just a fine story for what it is. Yeah. Like it, again, it's you know way ahead of any of the 2000s material. Right. But compared with Giant, compared with Bury My Knee at Wounded Heart, come honestly, compared with Howler is as absolutely batshit as Howler is. Oh yeah. Like it, Freefall feels a, a lesser piece. Yeah, but it does have a moment where you've got a cadet who more or less does everything right. Until he shows a moment of sympathy for the mother of the child who has become a, essentially a drugged out criminal, who we find out in a throwaway bit of dialogue is only 14 by the time he uh, is killed um, because he's an animal at that point. Uh, it So by contrast, you see one little bit where a cadet does everything right, has one moment of humanity and dread fails him. And it's a throwaway. So there's, in a way, the giant story has a combo of the, you know, Dread doing his exam story. And even a little bit of the Dread seeing the next generation and seeing uh, perhaps a next generation that will be better than him. But there is not the undertone of fear and dread to it, no pun intended, 
um, that you would see with um, old what's his name that leads into Necropolis. So I I think I part of me is do you think maybe this maybe this is Jeff reading too much into it? Do you think that? Well, why am I asking it as a leading question? I'll just say I'm I don't think I can make a case for it, but I do like the idea that Dread seen seen his replacement in his clone, his Judah clone. What the hell's the guy's name? Why am I blocking? Kraken. Thank you. In seen in Kraken, um, his replacement and and the degree to which he's like. That guy's wrong. It's fucked up. I'm failing him. And everyone thinks that he's being jealous and fearful. And it he's not, although he also is, but that's not why he's doing it. In that way where you see Wagner more or less knowing that he's going to get to the point where he is going to be leaving dread. He's going to be replaced. He's more or less got a lot of old man fears. Like Giant comes from a place of... Dread is in no way like none of that tension, none of that anxiety is in Giant, the story. Mm -hmm. um, in fact, Giant just feels like kind of a great engaging flyweight narrative that works because you are rooting for Giant. Certainly if you're like us at this point, longtime Dread readers and know the character. Um, but, you know the way in which it kind of sidles into dread having to finally pay the consequence of his actions. You know, I guess what I'm saying is it's weird how much it feels like an inversion of so much of the stuff with the Kraken storyline where dread sees not his darker image, um, but his, his better reflection the, the next generation that could be better than him. And that is needed because if nothing else, you see that Dread is incapable of treating a robot um, gently, which is, you know, um, something for which he must pay the price. So there, there's, you know, to, to get back to what you're saying, like just a second ago, Giant plays out like the other rookie stories we've seen mm -hmm. Wagner write for Dread. You know, not the not the Kraken one, right? Because Kraken is quite clearly about Kraken, mm -hmm. right? It's about the larger Necropolis narrative, but it's also about Dreads, in, as it turns out, entirely justified mistrust of Kraken and of the Judda. Mm -hmm. But we have seen other rookie stories, other cadet stories. That's a good point. Dread is with Dread is with the new rookie, and that's what Giant plays out like. Just a particularly uh, extended version of that, but also a version that we as readers or longtime readers can appreciate more because we've seen this guy before. That's right. You know, we've seen this character years ago at the start of his career, and we're rooting for this character. Not only that, this character has roots for the for the long time. Absolutely, readers, has roots to Harlem Heroes. Right. So he's you know, like, literally tied back to the beginning. Yeah, this is someone we are predisposed mm -hmm. to to want to succeed. Mm -hmm. And you, he Wagner very smartly starts it out by talking about how young he is, and you know, is this a mistake? Blah blah blah. And and 
makes it fe- makes it seem even more high stakes than it honestly it turns out being. Mm-hmm. But he totally engages us as a reader up at that point. Yes, that early, mm-hmm. and so when we then see what is again not amazingly different from the other rookie stories, mm-hmm. we're more invested, and so our high stakes play out more. And then, as you say, the Walter reveal comes from nowhere. <laughs> Right. I completely blindside you, which is great because also blindsides dreads. Well, I, like, you know, it's very well done. It is. It is very well done. I, I, I want to say, and I think that this is, uh, I, I would like to think, and I could be wrong. One way in which this story is larger than uh, and different than the traditional uh, other cadet stories that we see is it literally starts with with giant rising and leaving the academy for the last mm-hmm. time and one of the things that's glorious about that is on the first page there's a point where it's from giant's narration and he says no one speaks to me only my friend stachy and stachy says go get a man and then there's a panel of the two of them putting their hands up together kind of like a high five except their fists are closed. And it says, we are not supposed to form close attachments, but everyone does. And then Statue's saying, like, you can do it. So how do I put it? What's great about that page is in any other strip, you would take that as face value. In the world of dread, that page looks like it is showing you why giant is going to fail yes. and within the world of dread deserves to fail because it is because dread is about the denial of emotion is about everything being about the law of literally being by the book. And the very first page has giant talking about the fact that they are, have essentially formed close attachments, which they're not supposed to do. And, and so there is this inherent, like, Oh, Wagner is saying on the first page, like the way that is set up in the, by the rules of the judge dread universe this guy is going to fail. You know what I mean? This is like somebody having sex in a oh, slasher he's send, movie. He's sending, yeah, he's sending you a message. And it's, it's all misdirection. Right. Because the actual message is when you see Dread about to bleed out at the hands of, you know, arguably the person that loves him the most over the last 20 years. Um, because dread literally just could not be nice, could not treat him with any consideration, you know, it's, it it makes sense. Like it literally is Wagner more or less quietly in a way, in a story that plays by all the rules and conventions of a dread cadet story more or less upturning your expectations and and pointing to uh the idea that you know what giant might 
be the successor to Dread and might be better than Dread because he can be a judge and yet he might have the ability to 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 be a, a well-adjusted emotional person outside of being a judge, you know? That yeah, exactly. And, uh, but it's, it's also another implicit criticism of the justice system. Very much so. Very, very, very much so. But in a way that is almost kind of hopeful. And it reminds me, It remind, it's funny because Giant looks nothing or there's not anything about it. But it sort of reminds me of um, Kirby's uh, Forever People. You know, or his or his new gods. You know, it kind yeah, of like the 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 next generation is going to be better. Yes, exactly, exactly. That that and that and that that is something that they are they are not to be feared. They are to be supported and and are to be hoped for. I suppose. Yeah, you know? and that's yeah. that's great. It's and it's Try- surprisingly powerful. Giant is such a good serial. Uh, mm-hmm. it, it, it's such a, a, a wonderfully uh, simultaneously old school and reminding you what you're missing about contemporary 2008 Dread. Mm-hmm. Dread, mm-hmm. for want of a better way of putting it. Like it is something that, you know, 2008 Dread used to read like this. Yes. Yeah, almost effortlessly. And again, it is, that is something that... Um, uh, should be celebrated when you see it. Like there is a way in like, is I'm, I'm way more down with people for being racist in the first half of this book than for writing bad judge dread stories. Cause it's really fucking hard. And the thing that is, is ridiculous about it is Wagner can make it look easy. And that's, uh, and so that brings us to the Heller, which is essentially kind of a, how far can you get from telling a Judge Dredd story and still tell a Judge Dredd story, I guess, or something? The Howler's astonishing. It the is. The Howler is genuinely astonishing. Yeah. It is a, I mean, it's like four issues of the magazine, mm-hmm. which is to say it's about 40 pages worth of material. Yeah. Uh, Mick McMahon is the artist. It exists because of Mick McMahon. It must. You know, this, this, is, this is a strip that, that is not a story led strip at all. This is a strip that is all about the visuals that the plot is so amazingly slight, mm-hmm. a ridiculous looking monster wants the, everything he wants. And if you say no to him, he will yell at you. And when he yells, it it's so loud. It causes disaster. Yeah. Dread fights him. The end. It, it's, but it's, it's great. It is like, like it's so, it's like shockingly great. Yeah, it's it reads like especially the first time the Howler does his never say no to me. Mm-hmm. Yes, it's like a kid's book. It almost. does absolutely one hundred percent absolutely. And, and and it's it's if for once this book shocking in a positive sense. Yeah, you know it's so funny, Graham. I will be one hundred percent honest. Like I got two pages into the Howler and I was like, oh, fuck, this is going to be a story that Graham loves and I'm going to fucking 
hate it because it is the art is this is just going to be terrible and by the time you get to the howler his first full page never and then the next one never say no to me i'm like okay i'm wrong i'm going to love this and it's yeah, true this, it, well it's because like he says he gets turned down and it's only like the second page of the, the story where someone says no to him yes and the last panel of that page is him saying never and he already looks i mean cartoonishly freaky it's basically like a round mouth with like dot eyes mm -hmm. and then the next page is a full page splash of him yelling never and his mouth has gotten even larger and you're seeing a cartoonish man holds his head and then the page of that is him saying never say no to me and basically the visual is the, the dialogue yeah and just see that framed by the teeth in his eyes it's it's amazing. I mean, it's genuinely amazing. Yeah. But it does read like a kid's book. It in, absolutely in the best does. Way, mm -hmm. In the best way possible. Yeah. Um, but it's it's so about the visuals and the stylization of, of those visuals. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The, 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 the Howler as a character is so stylized. Yes. That it, it honestly feels like Wagner is doing a favor to McMahon. You know, you know, I mean, that this is the thing that it, it feels like a wonderful act of generosity. And I mean, McMahon is a guy who, you know this way better than I, I do, has been such a cornerstone of 2000 AD and Dread. And yet his style has... I don't know what metastasized, I guess, for lack it's, of a better I, term. I, I love, yeah, I love the way that, especially by this point, it's so abstract and he's coloring with, you know, they're not actually flat colors mm -hmm. because there is, there's texture there, but the texture is in no way photorealistic. Yes. Yeah. You know, the texture is, is, is a design aesthetic, mm -hmm. you know, so you see, you see a shot of dreads firing his log ever. And Dredd's body is so abstracted. Yes. It is a series of colorful shapes. Yeah. You know? And it, it's... McMahon has... has He started off as, you know, a, 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 a very good Iscariclone, for want of a better way of putting it. Mm -hmm. the, the, back the strip started. And then he sort of morphed into his own, his own style. And then his style continued to change. Yeah. And and by this point, his style has become this beautiful abstract thing. Anyone yeah. who's read The Last American, it's that style. Yeah. It's... So it's, like, it's like a very like fragmented, abstract style where people have, don't have realistic physical proportions, but instead are shapes, yeah. are collections of shapes whose bodies occasionally behave like real bodies do, but more often don't mm -hmm. and are all better for that. Yeah. It it's it's strange how much it is a weird, unholy Venn diagram of an era of Keith Giffen's work and Ted McKeever, but also its own glorious thing. Like there there are things where, and this gets thrown around a lot in a way in in the field of comic criticism, where you use a term you know, to basically say 
as a way of saying it's sophisticated and therefore good. But there are there are pages in here that genuinely look cubist to me, you know, and and it's fucking great. And it's amazing. Yeah. Also, like, you know, it looks cubist. But but one of the things that's thrilling about this is because of the gimmick of the howler, literally a guy who shouts supernaturally loud. You get Tom Frame's lettering. Mm-hmm. Oh, God. Dominating yeah. pages. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Like big fuck off marker pen lettering. Yeah. yeah. Just like taking over the page on multiple occasions. And so you have McMahon's incredibly abstracted style mm-hmm. almost being uh, like corrupt is not the right word, but but sort of manipulated and 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 turned against itself it's interesting. by, by frames mm-hmm. incredibly uh incredibly handwritten incredibly organic lettering that's funny because it feels to me so absolutely impossible to separate that i sort of assumed that that mcmahon had done those himself maybe they they're fabulous one of the things that's great about it is is if if that is indeed the case both the letterer and Wagner's script more or less frame McMahon's artwork, you know, in the sense of it's a beautiful piece of work and it's set in exactly the perfect frame to highlight it. One of the things that is fantastic about the story is, is that the howler as a voice is perfect like that character is so perfect and specific like when he starts off it almost seems it's it's kind of like you know if galactus was a prickish hotel guest that is i mean that's basically it he he talks like he is a cosmic scourge but then he is you know essentially snapping at the wait staff to bring him a cow and basically more or less complaining that everyone's put him in such a bad mood. He's going to have to torture 20, no wait, 30 people in order to get out of it because none of you people are listening to me. Like his, the howler's ultimate sense of entitlement um, is hilarious and again, when joined with the visuals, is such a is such a child's book character, is such a ridiculous cartoon of how do I put it? Like the the entitled what the entitled prickish aristocrat like i don't i don't really know where it's pulling from but it's great like he's like there's one point where he says where he's like shouting you're not listening to me and the e's are dragged out and and it's just that sort of like um completely impatient with the fact that these people don't understand that he is the king of the world. And of course, what's hilarious is because he beats dread to a bloody fucking pulp, as well as destroys a huge chunk of the city. I mean, he's, he's kind of not wrong. You know what I mean? Like he's, he's such a wonderfully, 
cartoonish character. Yeah. He is he is stronger than anyone else. Like he does. He beats Dredd to shit. Yes. But and at one point he says something along the lines of like, you know, I, uh, he, his last thing is I can howl you into oblivion. But he also says something about when I roar, planets tremble. Yes. And you believe it. Yes. But there's also literally no attempt to actually explain him. No. Do you know what I mean? Like he's this honestly just jerk that shows up mm-hmm. and demands everything and is impatient and everyone has to deal with. Yeah. And that's it. And there's something wonderful about that yeah yeah and again it's perfectly it's all perfectly situated for the visuals like you said it's a it 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 feels like a children's book because there's children's book logic to it he just is and you just have to accept it and honestly just as in any good children's book no one seems even surprised when he shows up in that sense, it's just more that he is so much worse than any of them could imagine. But like, you know, I, I, I it's just it is it's I really did. I was like, I am at page two. I'm like, I'm going to hate this. And by page four, I'm like, this is one of my favorite dread stories ever. And what was delightful was it that kept up all the way to the end. Um, and uh, the thing that's amazing is I was reading it. And I didn't realize it was a multi-part story mm-hmm. because it's so yeah. weird. It's mm-hmm. such a strange story mm-hmm. that the idea that they did this for four issues <laughs> blows my mind. <laughs> Can it you imagine? Picking so I was up... reading it. Oh my God. Sorry. Yes. yes. Mm-hmm. But I was reading it and just being like, how is this going to end? Like, right. Why is this still going? And not in the why is this still going about the 2000 AD ones. Yes. Where you're just like, I am exhausted and depressed by this story. Mm-hmm. It, the fact that it kept going and it kept on getting bigger and bigger. And honestly, kept repeating the same joke. Because yeah. the joke is just, he yells and terrible things happen. Yes. Like, But it's a funny joke that gets funnier the more he does it. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's a, The Howler should not work as a story. No. Should not. And it works in large part because it is so ridiculous and doesn't even attempt to explain itself. But also because McMahon's art it somehow doubles down on mm-hmm. how outlandish the whole thing is. Oh, completely. Completely. And, and just, like, just beats you into submission in the best way. Yes. Right. Much like the Howler himself. Yeah, no. I he, he It is. It is absolutely... Um, wonderful. Yeah, there's shots. There's there's towards the end. There are pages that if if I found out that McMahon had literally cut up sheets of cons- bright construction paper and laid them out on the page and then just photographed them and submitted those as pages and panels, I would absolutely believe it. Um, yeah, can you imagine how insane, Graham, it would be to like be at the newsstand and pick up your very first issue of the magazine and it's like part two or part three of the howler like not even part one but you know like where you're like this is a continuing story like it just yeah, doesn't what was part one like yeah yeah, yeah completely completely but imagine you picked it up and it was part four right <laughs> like legitimately imagine you picked it up Mm-hmm. And it's part four. And you just get that this guy is saying, I'm going to howl you into oblivion. And then Dredd 
essentially just reflects that back at him and he explodes. Yeah. And that's it. Yeah. That's the end of the story. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. It's um it's it's uh it's a phenomenal piece. And so it is. It, yeah. it's like weird performance art. It's 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 staggering. Mm-hmm. It's so out there that I honestly think you can't help but just love it. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think again, I think there's so much there that is in part because the other part is is none of it is none of it's done accidentally. It's all done intentionally. And there is and it's all the more amazing that you have Wagner and McMahon like it like doing something that is still recognizably a dread story but is so 100% um i don't even want to i don't know like deconstruction isn't really the right term but i mean it's as f- the closest thing that you could get is to the point is like if um somebody gave you a ham sandwich and was like this is a judge dread story and you're like it's a fucking ham sandwich and then you ate the sandwich and you're like no he's right yeah that was that was actually one of the better Judge Dredd stories um, I've ever read, much less eaten as a sandwich. Yeah, it's, and you're like, yeah, who, who knew? <laughs> yeah, right? It's like, I didn't know you could do that. And and I would be shocked if anyone ever will be able to top it in that sense for what it is. But it is. Yeah, it, it, it is. That's the, the other side of it, right? You yeah. don't want to see someone do it again. Yeah, I, I think so. I think so. Like me, once every twenty years seems about right. Frankly, I wouldn't. I wouldn't mind seeing another something, but, but yeah. Oh my god! And it really is. It's just you're like, how did they get away with this? Which is wonderful. But yeah, exactly. How did they get away with? It? But in a uh, a grateful way. Oh, absolutely. Sort of dazed yeah. and so happy that they did. Yes, as opposed to the. You know, how did the see print of well, of know. the first half of the book? Yeah, yeah. Of the first half of the book. Yeah, absolutely. You know? mm-hmm. The magazine stuff is so, so much better mm-hmm. than the 2008 stuff that the idea that they're being simultaneously published is is kind of amazing. Mm-hmm. It's, it's kind of jaw dropping. Yeah. I've got to ask, Drock or Dross then, this, this volume? Oh, Christ. I don't know. I mean, because that's it. I, I, I think. You know, it it would be very easy, which is to say cheating, to be like, well, the first half of the book is Dross and the second half is Drock. Um, and that's pretty close I mean, to I mean, how I feel. Yeah. yeah. You know, with the but exception of... I think that. Yeah. No, 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 no. Exactly. And, and if you swapped Roadkill for It's a Dreadful Life, it's like, to me, 100% down the line that way. So, so I think... You know, I think for me, the high heights, I mean, particularly for someone, if you've ever been, which I feel like over the years, you can't help but become a Walter the Wobot fan. Um, between between Giant and the Howler I and Bury My Knee at Wounded Heart, I think this is, those three stories alone are, are essential dread. So I have to say Drock. Yeah. That's the thing. I I agree. Mm-hmm. I think that the magazine stuff is so good mm-hmm. that it has it has to be drunk. It really does. It really does. Those heights because the magazine are stuff astounding. is great. Yeah, 
Yeah, it really is. And again, roadkill. What's interesting is, of course, everyone loves uh, John Smith and Indigo Prime. And there's just that like, oh, he's like the most amazing guy because he really was insane. And the shit that he got away with shows that like, you know, comics is a crazy blah, blah, blah. And and what uh, and every time I picked it up, it's never really taken for me. But his dread stories are like. There's nothing crazy about this guy. This guy is somebody who is really, really smart in terms and and has read enough crime fiction that he knows how to do a good he knows how to do a good dread story. It's that again feels a little ahead of its time. So I really do want to give a shout out to to Roadkill. Um but the rest of it I can just you know, chalk up to a, a week long nightmare. Um, well, but that's just it. Like we're we're at the phase now. We're first of all, we're at the phase where, at least, I know I am looking forward to Wagner doing more and more of the the two thousand eight material, mm-hmm. which is is coming. Mm-hmm. Like like Wagner does actually do two thousand eight material in the next volume. Mm, thank God. Um, but. But in this volume, it's like yeah, don't just don't read the 2018 material. Yeah, more or less. Just read, just read the magazine material. Yeah, I mean, it really does you're make not, it very you're easy. You're not going to be missing anything. Yeah, yeah. I I'm like read Roadkill, skip over the rest, get to the magazine stuff. You know, if you're feeling generous, read It's a Dreadful Life, and then and then just just settle in. Favorite stories in this volume. Um, from the 2000 AD list, Roadkill, uh, a few little bits and things in Manchu Candidate that I enjoyed. Uh, and then, uh, you know, uh, all of the, the magazine stuff, except for It's a Dreadful Life, which was not terrible. Um, no, it's not. It's not. Again, it's better than the 2008 material with the exception of Roadkill. It's just that, honestly, the, the, it's it's not that great a story and it does look worse in comparison to to the other magazine material yeah yeah exactly um so for me i would have to say like to split it out the top two non-wagner stories again as i said earlier roadkill and do the wrong thing and then it's almost harder to pick uh the best wagner stories because honestly there's i think there's only five of them and they're all good free fall ends up at the bottom you are the mean machine is a throwaway joke but it is good and funny and then you've got a weird fierce battle between bury my knee at wounded heart giant and the howler for first place and weirdly all for incredibly different reasons they're all different types of dread stories by the same creator, same writer, and with different artists. And that's stunning. That is stunning to me. You know? It's funny the way that this book really does reaffirm that Wagner Wagner can do dread in a way that no one else can. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, you know, like, you know, for all that we're like, you know, Smith, Smith is great. And Smith is great. Smith is. Yeah. Like, Wagner... 
Wagner's off days are still better than everyone else's on. Yeah. You know, what breaks my heart is I do wish in a way, and I know that Smith was building his own name and rep in a very different way. Uh, apparently if stories are to believe while also piling dynamite under it at the same time. But in an alternate world where Judge Dredd Case Files 20 has one Mark Miller story and six... John Smith? Exactly, exactly. That's what I'd want to see because that's kind of where a little bit the proof is would really be in the pudding. Is, Is Smith just good enough and smart enough that he can ape a good dread story once or twice, but really has nothing to say about the character or the world or can find an in beyond essentially doing variations on the brutal killer, you know, dread versus someone awful, you know, story mm-hmm. or, or does he have the chops to find, other ways in it certainly seems like he's got those chops but it but you know two volumes two stories in just don't know you know it's yeah it's like also we never really find out yeah i assumed that was the case um but i didn't know but yeah whereas i think um it is very safe for me to say that uh mark miller's dread in the parlance of the times, that ain't it, sis. You know? So. Wow. <laughs> That's, I'm, wow. I'm so tempted just to, like, end the episode there, and that's the last thing that anyone hears from Drock in 2020. <laughs> oh, that's right. That This is the last one of the year. Holy shit. Um... For what it's worth, my favorite is Bury My Neat Wounded Heart. That's um, a good pick. But honestly, the Howler comes like Howler comes really close. And and Giant comes really close. They're, like the, those three stories are, are all Yeah. I mean like just I said, fucking amazing stories. They're essential dread stories. They really um, fucking and are. If, and if I had to do a favorite non uh Wagner, it would be Roadkill by Smith. Mm, very nice. Yeah. I, I, I have to ask how confidence, maybe not the right word. How do you feel about doing volume 21 next month? You know, I, I gotta say, um, I feel that twenty 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 2020 is 2020. Like, let's face it. The year is what it is. And so, any part of the year that doesn't feel like a shower of flaming garbage being thrown at my head, I'm realizing is something that I should appreciate. But separately and apart from that, I feel that the first two years of us doing Drock uh, were so ridiculously strong. Well, no, wait, this is our, I guess this is our second year. Our first year of Drock was so strong. And really the first 16, 18 months or so is, was such a gift and such a treat that part of me is like, if I have to just shut up and put up with another year of garbage, what helps is as long as Wagner is doing the backups, um, 
you know, I'll be, I think I'll be okay. Also, God bless the fact that it is, um, the, the trash fire in the back and the magazine in the back in, in, sorry, the other way around because 2000 AD materials in the front and magazines in the back, there's an incentive for me to keep moving through the entire volume. If it was the other way around, I think I would be tempted to just read the Wagner stuff and then just lie and pretend I read the other stuff. <laughs> so, so that basically uh, sums it up. I'm resigned to my fate, knowing that there will be moments where it will mostly feel worth it. And when it's not, I have to rem remind myself of what I got to experience that first year and a half of this podcast. Do you want to know what's coming up? Oh, Jesus. Sure. Let's tell me, Graham. Tease uh, us. The next volume has another crossover between the magazine and 2080. Written by Wagner. Oh. So that's going to be fun. Mm -hmm. But also, there's a lot more Wagner next time. Mm. Hallelujah. Thank there's you. There's a lot more Wagner next time. <laughs> Thank you for telling but me. Also, there is 2080 Prog 900 story, which, unless I'm misremembering, and I might be misremembering, uh, I think it's an extra length story where it's Judge Dredd and Rogue Trooper. Whoa. Hmm. And that might be hmm. Prog 1000 and not Prog 900. Why? Right. I, right. But I think it is. Wow. Yeah, so it's going to be it's going to be a weird one, but it's going to be a weird one with a lot of Wagner, which makes me feel I I went into this volume not excited, shall we say. <laughs> yeah. And and I honestly I think the volume earned that not excited thing. Oh, for sure. Until we get until we get the magazine material. Yeah. But I left it being like I want to read more of this. Mhm. Mm mhm. Mm and so I find myself kind of excited to because i'm now very much in the period where i don't really remember this stuff i read it maybe once and i did i wasn't reading it at the time mm. so i don't have the nostalgia for it that i did the earlier material right right i feel like i'm discovering it just as much as you are now jeff and that's a scary wonderful feeling i was about to say i i, I in some cases i feel sorry for both of us but in but in other cases it's i mean that's kind of great uh for me um you know, it's weird because I'm very aware all throughout Drock that your familiarity with Dread and your familiarity with the stories that we're reading. And of course, you being you, sometimes there are things where you're like, yeah, I got all hepped up and I read two volumes ahead. And I'm like, damn it. You know, um, it's very strange to think that we will start hitting eras where both of us are mystified. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. That's uh it, it it's it's kind of exciting and that's and it's also a little scary because i do feel like in a way you have been a very good guide in terms of uh, very conscientiously saying okay jeff now brace yourself <laughs> and <laughs> and i said that about the morrison thing and you're like it's not that bad yeah that's that is true that is true but but then this volume came along and oof, yeah yeah Yep. There's going to be show notes for this up on waitwhatpodcast.com at some point on Monday. Uh, again, I'm not going to give a time because, hey, things happen, everyone. You suddenly, <laughs> all, all of a sudden, you're watching a Disney conference and it lasts for 17 years. <laughs> and, they, 
<laughs> a million shows based on anything you've ever thought of. Um, that in the meantime, there is a Tumblr and an Instagram, both of which I will be updating at some point before Christmas because there's Christmas shit I want to add. Uh, that's waitwhatpod.tumblr.com and instagram.com forward slash waitwhatpod. We're on Twitter at waitwhatpodcast. Jeff is on Twitter at lazybastard at L-A-Z-Y-B-A-S-T-I-D. I am on Twitter at Graham M at G-R-A-E-M-E-M. And we are a Patreon supported podcast and Drock in fact exists because of Patreon. Jeff, tell the people what they've won. Yes. Um, you guys, uh, Graham always puts it in such a good way. I'm like, I should riff. I should really riff. I'm honestly, I'm a little too tired to riff, but I am also, thank goodness, grateful. Grateful to all of our listeners for being amazing, astute, and if you've read our iTunes reviews recently, hilarious uh, listeners, uh, for which I have boundless amounts of respect uh, and gratitude for keeping us motivated and interested and, and you know, keeping the Wait What engine uh, fired up and running all these years. And um, there are the fine people at Patreon who go that extra mile and not only, uh, you know, keep us excited and fired up, but throw us a little bit of their hard-earned dosh as a result of which, as Graham mentioned, uh, stealing my thunder, so to speak, the we have 50 uh, episodes of Baxter Building, the reread of the first 416 issues of Fantastic Four that you can just dip in and indulge yourself wish if you want. And Drock exists entirely because of your generosity, and uh, which I am grateful for, although maybe less grateful during the first half of these case files than during the second half. Um, I'd like to give a special shout out to Empress Audrey, Queen of the Galaxy, and the uh, delightful um, and gracious Dominica El Franco for their continuing support of this podcast and in their roles as galactor, galactors of our protective realm. Let me try that again. Protectors. That's right. Protectors of our galactic realm we are uh as ever in your debt uh graham galactors i'm i i kind of love that next week we're going to be doing the last wait what of the year and we are going to probably be talking about our favorite books of the year or maybe not who can who can even tell i don't know if <laughs> jeff has made a list i know that i haven't made a list but mm-hmm. there's there's a week between now and then that's so right really, Oh. Um, yeah, so next week is the last week of the year. Other than that, uh, Jeff sings out because this is Drock, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you very much for listening. Drock! Report to the isocubes. You're under arrest. Join us in 30 days for another Drock. <laughs>